Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Good morning again to you, Emmanuel Fellowship. Uh, grace to you all the way from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, I want to express gratitude for you, your existence as a church. This is an opportunity to open the word and to hear the voice of the Lord. I want to express gratitude again to Pastor Trent, who I've known since March of 2016. Uh, we did the interviews for the residency in Memphis. And for some reason, after all of the dust had settled and none of us knew if we would be selected for the residency. <laughs> We didn't know. We didn't know. I connected with this brother. For some reason, we exchanged contact. And then the, the information went out about being selected, and the email was clear. Don't let anybody know. Uh, let us know if you accept. Don't let anybody know that you've been accepted. And for some reason, I text this brother <laughs> and asked him, uh, did he get good news? And he had gotten good news. And by God's grace, we spent seven months together with six other brothers Growing in our love and passion for Jesus, growing in our self-awareness, our awareness of ourselves, our awareness of our particular context in which we would be planting churches, and, and God has been faithful. And so, again, we sat on a couch in Memphis, Tennessee before this ever existed. This was just a dream, a hope, a prayer, a vision, but now it exists. All glory be to God. Praise God for uh, the, the Sinskis moving to the area with a burden with a passion and I praise God that he has been faithful to his promises and a church exists here worshiping uh, we've worshiped this morning let's continue in worship Isaiah chapter one I I've heard you've been considering that the effect the effect that the gospel has upon our lives the effect of the gospel and how it shows up in deeds and actions that are rooted in the promises of God understood, comprehended, and realized in the person of Jesus. I also hear most recently you considered what it looks like to love God, but also to love your neighbors. And so I want to continue in that stream. I want to continue in that conversation that has already been started. And I think that Isaiah will be of help to us. Uh, let's read verse 1. Uh, look closely with me. You have an app. You have a physical copy of the scriptures. This is the introduction to Isaiah's prophecy. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so we're introduced very early to Isaiah, the prophet, the one who is receiving the word of the Lord directly from the Lord. He gives us a little bit about the historical context, noting uh, who was ruling, who was king, earthly king at the time of his uh, prophecy. Now, as we read Isaiah, we're fully aware, though, that two things are at play. We're fully aware that there is a big A author. Who is the big A author? Okay, it's God. All right. But we're also aware that there's a little a author. It's, it's Isaiah. We know the Spirit of God carried the little a author along to pen, to communicate, to announce the very oracles of God. This is the case with Isaiah. Now, we know Isaiah is a trustworthy source because of two things. 
One, when we consider the New Testament and the early leaders and authors of our New Testament, the number one Old Testament source that was quoted in the New Testament is the Psalms, but number two is Isaiah. Okay, what does that mean? That means if Jesus and the leaders, the early leaders of the New Testament church saw Isaiah as a trustworthy source and they made connections with Jesus Christ and the identity of, of the church, regularly quoting from Isaiah, then I'm convinced that Jesus and the apostles are uh, uh, trustworthy sources. And the way that they handle Isaiah communicates to us that they held Isaiah in his words in high esteem. Now, we engage Isaiah 1 today, and some of us are scratching our head and asking the question, well, who is Isaiah? And what's interesting is the first five chapters of Isaiah, they, they, they don't give us much more of an introduction than verse 1. And it's not until Isaiah chapter 6 that we're actually introduced to Isaiah and his call to speak up on behalf of the Lord and to speak into his time and to speak into the particular geography in which he communicates the oracles of God. Many of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, look with me, if you will. You can flip over or you can just listen. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, looking all kingly, if you will. He was high and lifted up, and, and the train of his robe, well, it filled the temple. We're introduced to these seraphim, these angelic beings who make this glorious pronouncement about God. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then the angelic beings say what we know to be truth, that the whole earth is full of his glory. Well, when a man has an encounter with a holy and glorious God, there is only one right response, which is Isaiah's response. We read about Isaiah's response. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am, I am ruined. Some translations say I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and as I look around my, my area and my region, I live amongst the people with unclean lips, but something beautiful and glorious has happened. My eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and Isaiah was changed forever. These angelic beings, there's these burning coals, and, and Isaiah says that they touched my mouth and they said to me, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt, it's taken away. And your sin, it's covered. It's atoned for. And then Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, if you don't hear anything else I say, then hear the voice of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah and what the Lord said to him. The Lord asked a question. Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? The plural there lets us know that this is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whom shall we send and whom will go for us? And what was Isaiah's response? The only proper response to one, a human who has had an encounter with a holy God who is glorious in the train of his robe is filling the temple. He says, send me, Lord, I'll go on your behalf. I'll be sent in your name. Send me, O oh Lord. I've had an encounter with your holiness and your glory. The only proper response is to be scattered in the name of this holy and glorious God. And so as we encounter Isaiah 1 this morning, y'all, y'all know we are doubly blessed. We're blessed on the one hand with a man who has had a genuine encounter with God. And we're blessed on the other hand 
with a man who has been given words from God for a particular people in a particular time that will be a blessing to us as a people in this time, in your existence as a church, in your existence as a new congregation seeking to be a blessing and to serve the city that's eager to hear the voice of God. So in this moment, we open our ears, but we don't just listen with our ears as we groom Isaiah 1. We open our hearts because we also want to listen and hear the voice of the Lord in our hearts. So let me give you a roadmap so we know where we're going. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3, we want to learn from the failures of Judah, and, and it's a widespread failure. It's a, it's a national failure. Isaiah 1, 5 through 9, we want to learn from the suffering of Jerusalem, and right when the depths of our heart is like, this is bad news, this is bad news, is there hope? <laughs> There's more bad news. We want to learn from verses 10 through 20 from the spiritually empty worship that is being offered to the Lord. And then finally, uh, we'll look at verses 21 through 30, and we'll learn that there is hope. There is hope for the righteous ones, those who have been declared righteous in God, and there is hope for the wicked, and that's going to cause us to examine ourselves. We know where we're going. Without delay, let's go. Verses 2 through 3, learning from the failure of Judah. And again, it's a widespread failure. Look closely with me. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Be mindful, the language of the Lord having spoken. This is the same God who spoke and created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth and all the people who, who dwell in it. This is Genesis chapter 1 on display for us. And be mindful, the Lord is the one who created this community that we enjoy. The Lord is the one who created this church. His word went forth. People heard the word of the Lord and began to congregate and worship, having heard the voice of the Lord. Uh, listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. There's hope for him, though. He calls them his people, my people, but they, they're my people, but they just don't understand. What's good is we hear the fatherly voice in the first two verses of Isaiah chapter one. We, we hear the fatherly voice of God. He's not a deadbeat dad, right? He doesn't create children. He doesn't establish children and then forsake them. No, the Lord rears them and he brings them up. But instead of honoring him, they rebel against him. Isaiah paints an image for us, an image of an ox who knows the safe resting place of his master. And, and this paints a picture for us. Think about like a small baby. Some of you are, are new parents or first-time parents or, or you have small children and you know uh, the crib that the, that the baby should sleep in, but the baby doesn't want to sleep in the, in the crib. Uh, but you know this about that crib. That crib is for that baby's safety, right? Uh, the crib is not to hurt the baby. It's, it's just uh, to be a place of security. It's, it's supposed to be warm and soft and, and comfortable. And there's guardrails not to hurt that baby, but to secure and, and to be a safe place for the baby. 
well, I think the boundaries that the God has established for his people, they aren't to hurt his people, but they're actually for the protection and safety of his people. But Israel does not know their master. And they're not comprehending that their master is good, he is merciful, he is loving, and he is kind, and he is for them, and they're good. One commentator said that this passage is like Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses called heaven and earth to witness to the promise that if the people persisted in sin, they would be expelled from the land of promise. Now, I see some of y'all squinting your faces in this moment. And you're like, Charles, I think I'm trekking with you. You said we're in the Old Testament. Isaiah's in the Old Testament. Then you reference Jesus and the New Testament leaders and how they held Isaiah in high esteem, which is in the Old Testament. And then you quote Deuteronomy chapter 4. And you're scratching your head like, Charles, I'm new. I'm new. Could you, could you break that down? That's fine. Some of you are new to, to the Bible, and that's okay. Let me give you a two-minute summary, okay? The Bible has two testaments, right? It has the older testament, not older in that it does not have value and worth, but, but that which came beforehand, before the New Testament, right? So the Old Testament, it opens up God creating all things good, the crux of his creation, Adam and Eve, and they should have listened to the voice of God, but we know they listened to the voice of another. Sin enters into God's good creation, and things just ain't right in plain language, right? And the rest of the Old Testament is just this longing for the promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 3 that he would make things right through the promised seed, which would come from Eve. He'll crush the head of the serpent. And so the rest of the Old Testament is just this longing for things to be made right. God sets apart a people, and from among those people, by the time we get to the New Testament, comes the promised seed. Who is that? See, I like y'all. Y'all know the storyline. Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He goes into the synagogue and he teaches as one who has authority, not like the Pharisees and the scribes of the day. He's sharing meals with sinners. He's in close proximity to the broken. He's preaching good news to the poor. He's calling men and women to go hard after him as his disciples. And we know one of his disciples betrayed him. Judas Iscariot for a few pieces of silver. They come to take Jesus by night. He is sentenced under Pontius Pilate. Beaten, spit upon, laughed at, mocked, crucified, nailed to a cross. He hangs his head. He dies. He's placed in a tomb. And then Friday, Saturday, on Sunday, y'all know what happened. He raised, was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. But before he ascended to the right hand of God, he promised the precious Holy Spirit would come to establish the new community, the new uh, 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 sign that the rule and reign of King Jesus is at hand and friends that's the that's how this church came into existence right and the rest of the new testament is 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 god's new people learning to love one another learning to love their neighbors learning to love the lord their god with all their heart soul mind and strength and and this church is a continuation of that story you're in the story so that's what i mean when i say the older testament connecting to the newer testament The rest of the New Testament narrative is a people who should be turning away from their rebellion and turning to God. Isaiah is speaking to a people who should be turning away from sin and enjoying the promises of God, but instead they're receiving a rebuke from God. Listen to this rebuke. Verse 4, the Lord rebukes you. Ah, 
this sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The situation is bad as it sounds. They're not turning away from their rebellion and turning to their master, which is a primary reason that they're experiencing suffering. So verses 5 through 9 really show us, and they're written for our instruction, that we're to learn from the suffering of Jerusalem. Now let me frame verses 5 through 9 in a way that's not getting too deep into Isaiah's geography, but in a way that we can comprehend it and understand it in our normal day-to-day living. Okay, so people live in communities. All of us live in in neighborhoods. We live in cities. Right. And in our communities, in our neighborhoods and in this city that you live in, there are people who are suffering. Let me not just be outside, though. Be mindful in this congregation right now. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there are some people who are here that are suffering. And praise God that there's a community here that's genuinely concerned with the suffering of each other. But outside of this space, people who are not here, who are not worshiping this morning, out down the street, on your street, in your apartment complex, there are people that are suffering. So two things are true with regard to God and suffering. We think honestly about the city, but we also think redemptively about the city. We think honestly about the city and that there are systems and that there are structures that are sinning against people and causing people suffering. We, we, we just think honestly about, about the city. We know embedded in that is personal choice, and, and we're, we're not uh, exempt from having made bad choices, and as a result of some of our bad choices, there is suffering. It's not an either or, it's a both and. There are systems, there are structures, and people do make bad personal choices that result in their suffering. But also, we think redemptively about the city, right? There's good in the city, right? There's nonprofits and nonprofit leaders that are doing good work in the city. There's large churches in this city that have been around 100 years, 200 years, that are doing good work in the city. There's new congregations in this city that are doing good work in the city and contributing to the beauty and the blessing of the city. Smaller fellowships like this that are doing good things. But, but it's not an either or. We think honestly and soberly, but we also think redemptively. Scott Sunquist, in his book, Understanding Christian Mission, he says it better than I could. He says this, on the one hand, the city stands for all that is evil, full of devils, foul and corrupting. And on the other hand, though, the city, it stands for all that is noble. It's, it's full of the glory of God and it's shining with a clear and brilliant light. So as you drive around this city, there's brokenness, yes, but there's also beauty. And you need to know where you land on that spectrum. Some of you, all you see is brokenness and weariness, and you want to weep all the time. That's good. We need you. Others of you, all you see is beauty, and you don't see the brokenness. That's good. We need you, but we need to fill each other out. That's the the benefit of a diverse body, helping each other see what is wrong, what ain't right. But we have a God who speaks into and enters into that which is not right, and he brings good He brings good news, a glorious announcement, and that's coupled with D. That's where we're going. Okay, continue to run with me. Let's read verses 5 through 9 with that framework. The Lord calls out to his people through the prophet, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? They're suffering. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. 
from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But there are bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's as if the prophet is screaming out to the people, why are you continuing in these patterns? Why are you continuing in these cycles? They're not bringing your life. They're actually hurting you. What the prophet is not saying is you just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. The prophet is screaming and saying, do you understand what is going on? Do you comprehend your situation? Do you comprehend the situation around you? And he's inviting them. He's wooing them. He's welcoming them. He's showing them hospitality and inviting them toward health and vitality. Verse 7, your country, it lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city, a city that's been overtaken with unrighteousness. And if the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors, friends, that's good news. In all of this calamity and all of this brokenness, there's a few survivors. If you want a present day example of those who have survived and, and, and been freed from destruction, look around. They're survivors that, that should have been overtaken, that should have been swallowed whole, that should have had the destruction of the Lord upon us. But there's a few survivors, and I think there's a burden on the survivors. No time for survivors' guilt, but a time for survivors' thankfulness and action that flows from thankfulness and gratitude. See, y'all are smart people. I want y'all to make some connections, okay? I want you to make some connections with the suffering that's being experienced now in this congregation and in this city and in these surrounding communities, I want you to make some historical connections. Because the present suffering that's taking place, it has a context in the history of the city. So you got to become students of the, of, of the history of the city, seeing its beauty and seeing its brokenness. Your history as a church, you just celebrated one year. It's framed within the history of the broader church history of this area. So you got to become students of church history and you got to make some connections. All of those histories are micro histories under the macro history of God's story in the world, comprehended and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one plain application. Think about the historic African-American church, a people who endured suffering, hardship, In many cities across North America, being treated as second-class citizens, not having value, not having worth, yet yet the historic African-American church, they held tightly to Jesus. They held to the hope that they had in him. They endured suffering and hardship. And friends, if our ecclesiological formation as a church, as a new church in the history, does not take into account African-American church history, I just think our ecclesiology is not as strong as it could be, to say the least. My wife tells me I'm too charitable, but let's just run with that. Make some more connections. Isaiah 52 and 53, what's taking place there? The suffering servant. You see, the suffering that's taking place in the context of the city, the present suffering that's being endured in local communities and neighborhoods, the historical suffering that we can consider historic African-American church and the suffering servant in which Isaiah speaks about. And if you follow the New Testament leaders and New Testament authors, they believe that the suffering servant in which Isaiah spoke about was Jesus. 
look to Jesus, the one who suffered on our behalf. But also look at verse 9. Isaiah's making a historical connection. He speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah. I won't bore you with the details, but Genesis 19, there were people who were pursuing that which is not good, that which is not noble, that which is not true. And the Lord gave them an opportunity to turn from their carnal pursuits and to turn to the Lord. And they did not. And the Lord poured out his destruction. It was not burning coals that touched the lips of Isaiah that purified him in the presence of a holy God. It was an all consuming fire. The Lord gave him an opportunity to turn. In this present case, the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, though, they are not recipients of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. Because they exist and they can still respond to the words of the prophet, they are recipients of mercy. Friends, if you're here today, still alive, heart still bumping, right, blood in your veins, and you are here today, and you're a survivor, to use the language of the text, you are an extension of the mercy of the Lord. If your ears are still open and your heart is still open to hear the word of the Lord, you're in a good place. You're a recipient of God's mercy. We're gathered here today by the mercy of the Lord. I mean, you could have slept in today. You could have your head on the pillow right now under the blanket, right? But by the mercy of the Lord, you're here, right? Yeah, the blanket, the warm blanket is a great mercy from God, right? Because, because, make some connections, y'all are sharp. There are those on the outside who don't have warm blankets. And we're to be an extension of the mercy of the Lord, inviting them into a warm community. We'll figure the blankets out. But what does it look like for a community to be warm and welcoming? That which I've experienced this morning, y'all do well. Continue in that. Keep going. This works itself out, though, at the community group level. Is your community group dealing with suffering in the body, or is everybody pretending and performing, putting on masks? Too blessed to be stressed. How are you, man? Man, I'm great. God is good. Or are we entering into each other's suffering? This, this works itself out on that discipleship group level. It works itself out on the broader congregational level. Sometimes there's suffering, and we need the whole church deployed. Like, we need everybody to put $20 toward this need. The Lord will give you understanding. So we see the commission of Isaiah. We learn from the failure of Judah. We learn from the suffering of Jerusalem. Now I want to conclude, verses 10 through 20. We want to learn from the spiritually empty worship that's being offered to the Lord. Follow along with me, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He picks that up again. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. <laughs> and then we all step back. You're like, he ain't talking to us. Who, you, who, who is he talking to? <laughs> Let's be humble. Okay, he's not talking to us. Okay, this is written. Isaiah speaking to a particular people. This isn't a New Testament church, right? And by implication, he's not speaking to, to this congregation. But, but we can listen with a humble ear. We can listen to a humble heart. Right, because we don't think we're better than, than the ones in which Isaiah is actually speaking to. So we just listen humbly. We know he's not talking directly to us. But Lord, if you desire to speak to us, speak to us through the prophet Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He's poking at their worship now, says the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? What does the Lord say? Stop it. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense, it's an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath in the calling of convocations. I cannot endure your iniquity and your solemn assembly. So either you're going to offer wholehearted worship or you're going to give yourself over to iniquity. Make a decision. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, says the Lord. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. They're worshiping. They're going through the mechanics of worship. They're going through the rhythms of worship, but blood is on their hands. And it's not just from action, right? Because there is a transgression of action. He's calling them out about inaction as we're about to see. So we we could feel safe and say, well, man, I'm not doing that. I'm not contributing to the brokenness of the city. I'm actually a good person, Charles. I'm a good moral person. I pay my taxes on time. You know, I show up to work 15 minutes early, right? He's not talking to me. I show up to church early. I'm here, 945. But there's also a sin of inaction. Think about the houses of worship in this city. I I drove around with Pastor Trent yesterday. Rundown buildings, rundown church buildings, zoned for religious use. But there's very little that resembles true, genuine, earnest, compassionate, heartfelt worship that results in compassion for the marginalized, the outcast, the stranger, the foreigner, the poor, the forgotten. If you examine the history of many North American cities to include my city, even churches have a history of racism, segregation, scoffing at the poor, or they assume that preaching the gospel is a clothing closet in a soup kitchen. I'm for clothing closets and soup kitchens, but that must be coupled with gospel and community and encouragement and seeing people flourish in their purpose in life. What Isaiah is calling them to is to examine how their worship is resulting in witness. And right now their witness is non-existent. They're worshiping. They're offering prayers and fattened calves. And the Lord is like, stop, stop. Think about it in the last 50 to 60 years in this city. You've got the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists singing from their hymnals, nice robes and choirs. They give money to foreign missions. They only teach from certain parts of the Bible, though, that keep them comfortable. And I think Isaiah would say that that's dead religion. And I think Isaiah would call the churches in this city 50, 60 years ago to repent. I think David captures this in Psalm 51 when he's pouring out repentance to the Lord. He says this in verse 7 of Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 
See, Isaiah is not inviting them into a philosophical conversation and argument. He's saying your heart is off and you keep on worshiping and you think you're good, but it's not manifesting itself in compassionate, merciful witness on behalf of the Lord of hosts. And what this is for us all is a call to connect worship with witness. Scott Sunquist said, worship without witness is hypocrisy and witness without worship is idolatry. You can be concerned with mercy and and, and issues of justice and, and it not come from a heart that's closely walking with Jesus. But you cannot profess to have a heart and a life that's humbly and closely walking with Jesus that's not manifesting itself in compassionate mercy. Motive matters. Motive must match action. And for us, it's not a motivation to keep the law that's been written on stones and tablets. No, it's in light of the spirit of God having written grace upon our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. And it calls us to action, to live a life of compassion, which is verse 16 and 17. He calls the people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. He calls them to cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless. Friends, this has worked out at the community group level as well, in smaller pockets. The whole church has a responsibility to cease to do evil, to learn to do good, and that takes time. That's not going to happen in the first couple years of the church. It's it's an earnest pursuit that you never will arrive at. We're still learning to do good in the city. We're still seeking justice. Our eyes are open. We're aware. And it's not a philosophical debate. Charles, I would retort. The reason that the city is like this is because X, Y. No, it's a call to not empty your head, but to bring your whole heart when you see brokenness in the city. A broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. I promise you. And the overflow of a, a broken heart, and you don't need to be exasperated, and you need to be realistic about what can we tangibly do. What causes or inequalities, or injustices has God called our community to engage. We can't engage them all. We know our limitations. What oppressive systems and structures can we speak into, coupled with concrete action, bringing justice to the fatherless? I heard uh, Eric Mason say that fatherlessness is so pervasive that every man in the local church is going to have to take a fatherly role. And some of us who grew up without fathers or godly fathers were like, Charles, I don't even know what I'm doing. Some of you new fathers, you're like, I'm fumbling and stumbling through it. Okay, well, brothers, let's brother up. Let's father up. But you would be surprised how many ladies in this city grew up motherless or they had a a mother who was present. And I know this is a young congregation, but the older women, and that means mid-30s in this congregation, go ahead on and mother some of these young ladies who are not here. There's some single mothers out there that you can come alongside and figure and, and fumble and stumble through being a mother with them. Or some of you haven't been gifted in marriage or motherhood yet, and you can be a, a tremendous aunt to some of these kiddos and walk humbly with some of these widows and widow types that are in the city. Some of us would respond and say, well, Charles, I just don't see it like that. You know, I, I think I'm okay worshiping one day a week, being a good citizen Monday through Friday, being earnest and fleshing out my faith and my vocation before my employer. And I think verse 18 would cause you to be shook a little bit. The Lord says this, come now, let us reason together. 
I think that's a weak reason. We got to fight about it. Let's fight about this, okay? Because the Lord doesn't want his people to be deceived thinking that they can continue to worship and not have compassionate expressions of witness. He offers them the same thing that he offered Isaiah when he was called in commission. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like... So he offers them hope in the midst of all of these judgment announcements. There's, there's hope at the end of Isaiah 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. I think this calls us, and let me conclude with this. I think this calls us to a greater presence with suffering in the city. I think it commissions us to be a people who are seeking to serve others, to serve strangers, to love strangers, realizing that it's going to cost us something. We don't serve for ourselves. We serve on behalf of God because there is a, a prideful service where I just want to be recognized. But there is a service that flows out of a compassionate heart. I think it calls for greater care inward in the community. So we can be a people who are cared for and then to care for others and, and strangers and, and those who are struggling. It calls for cultivation of community across lines, across ethnic and socioeconomic status. I think it calls for generosity and for us to examine our generosity. Am I giving ritualistically or am I giving generously for the advancement of the gospel, for people to be invited into warm community, for people to grow in their understanding of their purpose and their mission in the world and in the city? And then last but not least, I think it robustly calls us to be hospitable, to be welcoming and inviting, to love strangers and to invite them into a life-giving community concerned with ceasing to do evil, learning to do good, seeking justice, to correct oppression and brokenness, and to plead the widows and the fatherless and the orphans' cause. Can we pray together toward that end? Lord, we love you. And the only reason we love you is because you loved us first. Thank you, Lord, that it was not works that brought us into this grace, and it is not works that will keep us in this grace. For, Lord, we are secure in you. And so we don't have to begin to serve and seek to be a blessing to others out of insecurity. But, Lord, you've given us a great security. That Sodom and Gomorrah fire, that purifying fuller soap that John the Baptist spoke about, Lord, that leads us to Jesus. These judgment oracles are written to a particular people that needed a savior. And God, we thank you that we have a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer, one who rescues us from vain worship. Repetition is good, regularly gathering to worship. But Lord, we don't want repetitive worship for the sake of checking the box. We bring our whole hearts to you. We bring our brokenness and our contrition. We ask that you would heal us of our broken hearts, that you would purify our indifferent hearts to the sufferings of others in this congregation and scattered throughout this city and the surrounding communities. And God, we pray that you would give us a passion and a zeal 
for these things in which the prophet speaks about. God, give us understanding in the weeks to come, in the months to come, maybe even in the days to come, where we can be a dispersed people with mercy on our hearts, compassion on our lips, after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meet our needs, Lord. We need to be empowered by your spirit for this kind of worship and this kind of witness. And knowing that you are a good God, Lord, we trust that you will provide it for us according to your tender mercy and your steadfast love. So we receive your help and your guidance that we might worship with our whole hearts and that we might witness for the testimony that we have in Christ for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.